Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear DJ Crystal Clear. I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Don't sing the song or I'll punch you in your face. That and more. But before that, oh my gosh, we have so many phenomenal live shows coming up. On July 19th, Risk is back in Los Angeles. These new LA shows that David Crabb has been producing and hosting out there have just been such a treat. People are loving it. It is at 7 p.m. on July 19th at the Hotel Cafe. And then on July 21st, Risk is back at Caveat in New York City. I'll be hosting the show that night. That is at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And then on July 30th, Risk is back in Detroit. Holy shit. Risk is coming back to Detroit at the Magic Bag. That is 8 p.m that that show will be happening on July 30th. And then on July 31st, Risk is finally back in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. That is an 8 p.m. show. Now, all of this information is at risk-show.com slash tour. You can buy your tickets. There's links to buy your tickets there. And you have the option of the in-person show or the live streams of these shows. So check that out at risk-show.com slash tour. Now here's the show. the year that it is, but it's kind of beginning to feel a little bit like 1969. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this, of course, is the great public enemy. Behind me now, fight the power. That's also what we're calling Today's episode, it's an extraordinary episode for you today, inspired by the same spirit you hear in this song. And if you've never seen the film Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee, which also prominently featured this song, that movie remains as profound and powerful as ever. And we hope we can add to that conversation about how racism is stoked by wealthy and powerful folks who want to tear down solidarity among the rest of us by exploiting these old, backward, fearful, dangerous prejudices we've all been raised around. We have so, so much power to access in solidarity with one another when we fight against the tide of that bigotry. We have so much love and strength and resilience to find in coming together and in being anti-racist. Now, our first story on the episode today is told by a white man, and our second story is told by a black woman. It's fascinating to hear the echoes in these two stories. The first story is told by Nibs Stroop, who is the co-author, along with Catherine Meeks, of the book Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. Uh, it's got a foreword by Stacey Abrams. If you don't know, Ida B. Wells was one of the early leaders of the civil rights movement. By early, I mean she was literally born into slavery but by the late 1800s was a giant voice in the fight for justice. And the remarkable Nibs Stroop came to our attention because 
our audio editor, John LaSala, worked on the audiobook version of Passionate for Justice with Nibs. And Nibs is a truly beautiful soul and a lovely voice to be hearing right now. So without further ado, here is Nibs Stroop with a story we call We Who Believe in Freedom. We entered the Jarvey Room at Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn on a hot June day in 1966. My friend David Billings and I had just walked the six blocks from the Mance apartment on Washington Street to the church at South Oxford in Lafayette. Those six blocks were a feast for our eyes and our senses as Southern white boys from segregated society. Uh, we had all kinds of noises and sights and sounds, noises like cars and traffic and different dialects and language, sights like brownstones jammed up and many different people, different colors, uh, smells of the city life, foods and people and car exhaust and garbage, all kinds of quick movement. I was from a town of 12,000 people in a farming community, so it was kind of a, a veritable banquet for we guys from the South and began to separate ourselves from small town experience just a little bit. We were in the city, and it was a, a wowing experience, and I knew we were in a, a new world. David and I were 19 years old. We had just finished our sophomore years in college. We had come to Lafayette Avenue to be on the staff for their children's summer program, which served black youth in the neighborhood, including Bedford-Stuyvesant, which was at that point a pretty uh, difficult and poor place to live. I didn't really know it then as, as being a place where uh, black people lived and uh, where people struggling financially lived. It just seemed to me to be so many people, so many apartments, so many buildings, uh, and so black. The Jarvie room which we entered that day was a parlor in its former heyday. It was on the first floor of the church. It had uh, couches and rugs and a piano, but now it was a gathering and meeting room. As we entered that room, the first thing that I noticed was the racial mix. There were about 50 young adults and older youth who would be part of the summer staff. And that staff, much to my surprise, was only 60% white, which sounds like a lot, but to my white eyes, it was not a lot. And so I was kind of astonished there were so many black people in the room. Uh, but inside myself, I'm feeling uncertain about this. Can I do this? I've never experienced this. I don't know what's going on. I was, of course, a little scared, but David, my friend, was with me, so that helped a lot. Uh, but I was a kind of mixture of anxiety and excitement on one level. I had never experienced anything like this before. I guess another fortunate part is that the senior pastor was a white guy, so that made me feel a little bit more comfortable. And then he made an announcement that made me feel uh, more uncomfortable, and that was the day-to-day -day leaders of the staff were two African-Americans who seemed like older folk to me. They were in their early 30s. Looking back on it, I wonder why I was surprised. I was coming to a church in a black neighborhood where 95% of the kids in the program were black. But I was bringing my white supremacy mindset with me. I came from the strictly segregated South in 1966, it had been 12 years since Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, but my part of the South, the Arkansas side of the Mississippi River Delta, was still under strict white control. The Civil Rights Bill in 1964, the Voting Rights Act in 1965, but still where I was from, white folk were in control totally. But when I entered that room in 1966, I began to know that I was entering a different place in my own consciousness. We came into the room and Reverend Knight, the senior white pastor, was describing the program, telling us some rules, passing out booklets about what we should be reading and thinking and some rules for living. Uh, and he noted that most of the staff were white uh, and from around the country, but that we'd also working with some older youth. 
And then Reverend Knight said, I'd like to introduce you to the people who are going to be your supervisors and who are going to guide you through all this and who are going to save your lives. And this is uh, Gene Hatley and Nancy Walker. They're going to be your supervisors. They're the day-to-day leaders of the program, so you'll need to listen to them and get to know them, and you will be under their supervision. I was astonished that I would be led by African-Americans because in my segregated world, that never happened. I would never be led by black people. Gene Hatley and Nancy Walker, who uh, I described, I felt then were older African-Americans. They were in their middle 30s, so they're obviously not older. Neither one of them were big, so that helped. But my immediate response was, oh man, I am in an, a whole new world. It didn't scare me as much as I thought it might have, but it did kind of astonish me, sort of like Alice in Wonderland, that I'm in a a whole new world that I don't know anything about. I can't get back on the plane and go back home, but I felt a little bit of that, but I I wanted to try it out. Then they spoke and they were very good. I know white folk often tell black folk they're very articulate. I probably felt that, but they were excellent. And so they began to lay out the program and what we would be doing. Uh, They didn't address race at all in the sense of We know that you're mostly white youth or young adults and we're African-Americans. They addressed it like we're the bosses and you do what we say. Though I didn't realize it then, entering that room on that hot June day in 1966 was like traveling through a portal or time traveling to a new planet. Those few steps into that room that day meant I could never go home again. I didn't know it on that day, but I left home forever when I walked into that room. So I grew up in a small town in Arkansas. It was on the Mississippi River Delta. It was a farming town. It was in a time of neo-slavery and white supremacy. My father abandoned my family when I was a baby, and we went to live with my great-great-aunt, my mother's great-aunt. But I was raised by women in this southern patriarchal, uh, segregated, uh, white supremacist society. So I learned and I believed the, the idea of white supremacy. And I didn't learn it and believe it because people were spanking me if I didn't. I learned it from people I loved and who loved me. And that was a very powerful force because it seeped deep down into my soul. It wasn't like I didn't believe it and resisted it, but had to act like I believed it. I believed it because it came from people that I loved. So white supremacy was deeply infused into my system, not by really terrible white people, but by white people who were really wonderful in my life. It's a complex and it's deep down in there. There began to be some cracks in that system. My mother was one of the uh, ones who helped to crack that system, not a lot, but a little bit. She would never let me say the N word in her presence. And I argued with her and told her that all my friends said it. And she said, I don't ever want to hear you saying it. And so I said it out in the world with my white friends, but I never said it in front of her. She also would not let me call any adults by their first name without their Mr. or Ms. or um, Miss. And again, I complained that uh, that was okay for white adults, but for black adults, all my friends called them by their first name, and I needed to do it, I wanted to do it. She said, you better never do it, and I better never hear about it. The other story that I remember is that when she came home from work one day, I told her, Mother, I hate Jews. And she said, Nibs, why do you hate Jews? And I said, because they're Jews. And she said, well, do you hate Raymond? And I said, no, Raymond is my friend. She said, well, do you hate Ruth? I said, no, well, Ruth's a girl, but I don't hate her. She's, she's okay. She said, Nibs, they're both Jews. And I said, no, they're not. She said, yes, they are. So you better be careful about what you think you know without knowing a lot about the subject and about who you think you hate. We were poor, so we lived in a poorer neighborhood. There were black families living a couple of blocks, really a block and a half down in a little alleyway down below our house. And I remember a black woman who was a mama used to come to our back door to get our leftover food from my mother and my great-great-aunt. I assumed for her family, I remember asking my mother why they came to the back door to get the food. And she said, "Uh, well, they're hungry, Nibs, and we have food that we can share with them. My mother also shared hand-me-down clothes that we had from me especially, and they used to walk in front of our house on the street. And I remember one day, I guess I was seven or eight years old, seeing a black boy wearing my old cap going down the street. And I wondered what had happened to that cap. So I ran out into the street and I snatched it off his head. 
My mother came out right behind me and told me to put it back right back on his head, and she got a switch and said, if you don't do it, I'm going to switch you. I said, well, Mama, it's my duty cap. He can't wear that cap. It's mine. She said, well, I gave it to him, so he is going to wear it. I said, no, I want mine back. And she said, well, I'm going to go get your new cap that I bought and put it on his head if you want to wear that when you go ahead. I said, I'll do that. So she went and got the cap and put it on that little boy's head, and he went on. I I never knew his name. In 1962, James Meredith decided to apply to his state university, which was Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi. The problem was that he was African-American from Ole Miss's point of view, so they refused to let him in. And of course, Robert F. Kennedy, the attorney general, got involved and got President Kennedy involved with Ross Barnett, the governor of Mississippi at that time. Oxford uh, was only about 60 miles from Helena. And I remember David and I and other white guys having a conversation during uh, the lunch hour in high school during this time when everything was going on. And we decided since there was a new bridge across the Mississippi River, we would go help defend white Southern manhood. And I remember David and I wanting to do that, feeling a little uncomfortable, uh, but wanting to be with our white peers. So David and I said we would go somehow. And thankfully our parents found out about it. So they forbid us all to go. So none of us went. But they had a white riot at Oxford and Ole Miss in the next couple of days. But I remember David and I talking about that, and he wondered why the resistance was so great to James Meredith. And I would say, well, it's obvious, isn't it? And he said, well, I don't think it's quite so obvious. I mean, I know the reason uh, why there's resistance, but I wonder what's really going on. And I, I remember thinking at that point that there was a lot more going on than I thought. But I have to say that I met my first black person in a novel that was recommended to me in high school by one of my English teachers, Vera Miller. She recommended that I read Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Payton, which was written in 1948 about apartheid developing there. And I read that book and I met my first black person. He was a minister named Reverend Stephen Kamalo. Uh, The thing that struck me in the book was that he was going to Soweto to search for his son who had been lost to the family. And that got to me, I think, because I was searching for my father. He was searching for his son. And I remember, I can just about remember the page where I looked up and thought, gosh, he sounds a lot like me. Can black people really be like me? And I didn't tell anybody about it. I wasn't going to reveal that kind of stuff in segregated society. The other story, I guess, where I had the most intimate encounter was after President Kennedy was assassinated. By that time, my great-great-aunt had died, and so my mother had hired a woman at her shop to clean up named Miss Martha. She was an African-American woman. And as they worked together, my mother started hiring Miss Martha to do ironing at our house. Uh, it was right after Kennedy assassination. It may have been on the day of the funeral. I can't. Um, it must have been because I remember Miss Martha crying, and I noticed her crying. So I said, uh, "Miss Martha, are you sad about this?" And she said, "Oh, oh, Nibs, yes, I really am. He was such a good man, and I can't believe they killed him." And I remember it was a little crack in that facade that I was thinking, "Oh gosh, she's feeling a lot like me." And I, I you know, I'm. On one level, ashamed to say that, but it's, it's my experience, and that's what it was. So after I read Cry the Beloved Country, I recommend to David that he read it. He read it. He wasn't quite as impressed as I was with it, but he began to, uh, we began to think about it and talk about it more when we went off to college. David, interestingly enough, went to Ole Miss. I went to Southwestern at Memphis, which is now Rhodes College, and that was in the fall of 1964 and into 1965. So we were together in a restaurant called Nick's in Helena, which is a end of the street drag where a lot of white guys went after their dates or movies or parties to debrief on the weekends. And at the end of the Christmas holiday, we were sitting around talking, and David and I, as I said, had begun to think about a different world a little bit. And I had heard from a friend in college at Davidson, actually, that there was a program in Brooklyn uh, at a church there that uh, got white people, especially from the South, to come up and work on their summer program. So I said, I've heard about this church in Brooklyn. I don't know if we could get in, but I could find out information. Would you want to try that? He said, yeah, I'd like to try it. 
So I found out from my friend at Davidson about the program and applied. And what excited us, I don't think we gave very much thought that we were getting out of the white supremacy area of the South as so much as we were going up to the big city. I mean, we were talking of baseball games, uh, clubs, uh, all kinds of things. And that's what really motivated us both. I left the Jarby room after the orientation and went to the kindergarten class where I was an assistant teacher. Now all of the kids in our kindergarten class that summer were African American. As I started working with them, I noticed that they were just kids. Uh, we glued stuff together and colored things and we would read books to them. I remember thinking perhaps when uh, we were reading a book and they were asking questions about it, it seemed to me uh, they were the same kind of questions that I got from the white kids questions like, uh, why did he do that, or why did she do that, or why did they uh, like one another? I think there was a story about a boy and a girl uh, beginning to date or something like that. And as they asked their questions, I began to think they were the same kind of questions I got in the summer programs and the programs that I worked in my church growing up. So I had a lot to learn, uh, obviously, and I was not only a naive white boy, I was a naive small town boy in the big city. I remember another incident with some of the kids a few days later. They were playing some kind of stoop ball near the entrance to the church sanctuary, and it was Sunday, so it was getting time for worship, and Reverend Knight asked me to go out and speak to the boys and tell them to stop playing or to move on down the block and play. So I went out to tell them in the mood. I said, guys, the worship is about to start, so you'll uh, need to move on down the block here so we can get people into worship. And they said, well, it's a public sidewalk, so we're going to stay where uh, we are. So then I gently put my hand on one of their shoulders to emphasize my point, and he responded, white man, don't you put your hands on me, you'll get hurt. I didn't say anything then because I was really astonished, and I was kind of scared. Even though they were seven years younger than me, I was astonished that they had crossed what I considered to be a huge barrier at their audacity. And I had never experienced that uh, in growing up in Arkansas. So I just was quiet and I went in to get a black male staffer and asked him to come out and help. And he went out and shooed them off with no problem. He said, well, you, you need to do better on this. And it was an eye opener to me. It reminded me of how much I had to learn and how much of white supremacy was still in me. They had a required reading list for the books that we would have to read and we would talk about them each week. And they had James Baldwin on the list, and I began reading the book that they had recommended, which was The Fire Next Time, a very powerful book. It was the first time I'd ever read anything by a black writer, and what a writer to start on for that kind of journey. Uh, his writing entered my soul in a brand new way. I really hadn't thought that black people could think that way or, th or that powerfully. And I remember feeling that James Baldwin was really angry in the fire next time and wondering why he was so angry. And I remember Gene, the black male leader, saying pointedly to me, you have no experience with being black. So one of the things I would advise to you this summer is to take these readings in and to learn about them and to hear that these are real people talking about real feelings. I know you've been raised in a way that you don't think that's possible, but it is, and I'm one of them. So I hope you'll learn from that. So those kind of experiences, I guess Nancy Walker, the other leader, uh, was gentler and in some ways reminded me of my mother, kind of a steady process, and she would be kind of more pastoral and with me and other white folk. And I began to think because of that, both of those, that I had a lot to learn and that in this new world, it would be possible for nibs who came up there in early 1966 to survive and still be nibs in some way when I left for the summer. So I was experiencing black leadership and black authority and black humanity and black creativity. And it was not totally shocking, but it was beginning to enter my consciousness and beginning to find its way into my seeing a whole new world. I also had a summer romance with a young black woman on the staff, and it was hard to be close with her and to hold on to my white supremacy. Now, some of my white forebears had done that for generations, but I couldn't do it. Margie worked in another department in the summer program, but we often took field trips together, and so we were walking along together and teasing one another. 
I don't remember at first thinking about, oh, this is a black girl, what am I doing? I just remember being impressed that a girl was interested in me at all, so that was part of that. But early on, she teased me a lot about being kind of a white hick from the South and wondering what I was doing there, what I was learning. And I remember one conversation before we started dating where she asked me what it was like to live in a place like Helena in the segregated South. And I kind of naively, I told her, well, Margie, I I don't really know. I mean, I, I, I know a lot of black people and their names, but I don't really know them, so I can't really talk about uh, their life. And she said, well, I'm talking about your life. What is that like? And I said, well, I was raised to believe this, and I'm, I'm here this summer to try to see if it's true, and on one level hoping it's not true, and if it's not true, what I'm going to do with my life, what that's going to mean. And she said, well, I hope you'll find that it's not true, and what's true is a different understanding of your life and of life. And I remember being impressed by that, and so we kind of uh, went out together some, and I began to be aware of the differences, and I never felt uncomfortable like I would have if we'd been doing it in Helena, uh, because it was such a diverse place and there were so many different kinds of folk. Uh, But I remember thinking somewhere as we were dating uh, that I had crossed the line, that I I couldn't date her and keep those same thoughts about black people that I had brought up with me in that summer. As we began to come toward the end of the summer, and I knew David and I would be leaving, I found myself very reluctant to go on several levels. One was Margie and I were dating, and I really liked her, and she seemed to like me, so I didn't want to leave her. The other was I knew that I had crossed over, and so I didn't know what was going to happen when I went back to Helena. I didn't know how my mother would receive it, the most important person in my life. Uh, One, when I told her that I had changed my mind on stuff, and another, that I was dating a black woman. I didn't know how the church would receive it. I didn't know how I would exist, and I gave some thoughts to maybe coming back up to New York as soon as I could. So I was surprised that I was reluctant to leave. I thought I would be ready to leave. But I remember looking back in the Jarvie room that I had entered when we first came and thinking that uh, my life had changed in ways that I really couldn't imagine. I didn't think in these terms, but I I thought to myself, I don't know that I can go home again. I don't know that I can do this. I've just had such a different experience, and the world into which I'm going back will be so, so much the same I anticipated, and that I, I remember thinking, how much of a stand am I going to make on this when I get back? Will I have the wherewithal to say there's a whole new vision out there? I do remember saying goodbye to Reverend Knight, I think part of his plan was to bring white Southerners up in the summer programs to help transform our view of ourselves and the world. But I remember him saying, uh, you're really a fine person and you've made a lot of difference, uh, and I hope that you'll take what you've learned back to where you live and to wherever you go. We wanted this summer to be a place where you grew and learned about a different view, and I think you have uh, accomplished that, and I give thanks for that and for you. On the last night, Marjorie and I were together. We stayed together really probably till about four o'clock in the morning in the Jarvie room where I'd first entered. And we were uh, making out some, as I said, this was the mid 60s, so there wasn't more than just first base or second base kind of stuff in the making out. But I remember just being really sad to leave her. I hadn't dated much, that was part of it, but she was also part of this strong shift in me and and that made a huge difference so I attached some of that to her which she deserved to have it attached to and I remember being really sad we said we would stay in touch with one another and I was planning to come back up at Christmas so it was really kind of a hard parting but I thanked her for all that she had taught me during the summer. My mother met me at the airport in Memphis when I flew back in and I had a lot longer hair so she laughed at that And on the way back, she talked with me about what I had experienced. And I said, well, Mother, I think I've changed my mind on race, and I don't know that I can go back to the way I was. And she said, well, Nibs, it's going to cause you a lot of pain and a lot of hurt, and I hope you can uh, be very careful about what you do down here because people don't like to hear what you're talking about. I do remember we stopped for lunch in Tunica in a place called the Blue and White Cafe, 
and we walked into the cafe and I had hair down to my shoulders and I noticed it was a segregated cafe. This was 1966. And I um, noticed a lot of people looking at me and I told my mother, I said, mother, they're not gonna serve us here because of my hair. And she kind of laughed it off, but they didn't serve us. And so as we got back in the car to go on to Helena, she said, you see what I mean? People already know. So on the way uh, home between uh, Tunica and Helena, I said, well, Mother, there's one other thing you need to know. I, I'm, I'm dating a black woman up there. And she said, oh, Nibs, don't tell me that. I don't want to know that. You can't do that. It'll never be accepted. And I said, well, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but I just wanted to let you know. She said, well, I know, I know you're hard, and I know you're a kind and loving person, but I just hope you won't take this very far. It won't do any good for either of you. But I told her I was going to stick with it. As I think back on it, she could have made it a lot tougher for me than she did. But uh, the other thing that I remember is I could not wait to go and tell the elders of my Presbyterian church about my experience because I decided that I did want to affirm it and I did want to help them understand the whole new world because I thought when I came back to Helena at the end of that summer that their problem and the problem of all the white folks who had taught me white supremacy was ignorance. They just didn't know. They hadn't taken the time to get to know black people and that I'd been fortunate to do it, so I was going to tell them that. My friend David Billings also uh, was going to do the same thing at his Baptist church. So I met with the elders at First Presbyterian Church. Uh, there was an office with a big oblong uh, cherry dark wood table and I think there were about seven or eight elders, maybe out of about 12, who were there, all of them men at this time, no women allowed to be ordained. But I met with the elders, the clerk of the session had taught me in Sunday school, all of them had taught me and had been mentors to me. So I felt like I would get a good reception as I went in. And I was at the head of the table and they were sitting around. I remember the clerk of the session asking me, he said, well, we're glad you're back, Nibs, and we want to hear about your experience. I've heard from your mother that you had quite a time there and that you want to talk with us about it, and we're glad to talk with you. So we'll just turn it over to you and then uh, tell us about your experience, and then we'll ask you some questions. And so I, I began to talk with them, I guess probably 20 minutes, to tell them my experience and how I'd experienced black leadership and black people. I didn't tell them I was dating a black woman because I didn't want to go down into that rabbit trail. But I told them that I'd experienced black folk as human beings and it really had changed my life. And that the church needed to understand that the black people leading in Helena were people just like us. And I hope that we could find a way to work together and to begin to change things. So I said, I'll be glad to talk with you about some ideas that I have for changing things and for finding ways to be together and seeing one another as sisters and brothers. And that was met with stone cold silence. Not many people would look me in the eyes. I looked around the room and waited for a response. And then the clerk said, uh, Nibs, we appreciate you taking the time to do this, and we're glad you had a good experience, but we don't believe that what you experienced is true. We don't uh, believe we can do that down here because life down here is not like life is up in New York. And another man on the session asked me, he said, well, it sounds like to me that you've gone up north and been Yankee-fied. We've had a lot of white uh, youth and young adults go up north and they get a different view from the way the world really is and especially the world here. So we won't be doing anything of that. Uh, we're sorry, but we, we just can't do that. It's not possible here. And then a third man said, and we don't want to do it either. I was shocked. These were really important people to me. They had been parenting figures to me. They had taken me to baseball games, fishing, all kinds of things. They had stepped into the breach for a guy whose father was absent, and they had done so many things for me. I had expected them to have a little resistance. I had expected them to say, well, it's going to take some time. So I, I was shocked. I was hurt. Not only had they rejected my vision, I thought they had rejected me. So it opened up a deep chasm in my heart about the church. And so I dropped out of that church and the church for several years because I associated what they said and thought with the racism that I experienced. And it was a tough experience for me because the, the church had been so important to me and it was hard to feel that these parental figures were now rejecting me. Um, it was tough. And I talked with David 
and he had the same experience at his church. And we began to see that this white supremacy was not just an individual issue, not just a matter of ignorance. It was a living, breathing organism, a powerful system passed down from generation to generation. And now we had stepped into wrestling with that system in our own hearts and in the community and in the larger world. I did go back to college in Memphis that fall, and it was different, and I was different. Indeed, my white roommate from Mississippi told me that I probably need to go on back up to New York. He didn't say this in a mean way, but in a protective way. He didn't think that I could survive or thrive in the white supremacist South. I made a point that year of acquainting myself with some of the few black students on campus. I think there were three or four out of about 1,500 people. Once I began to sit with and try to get to know uh, some of the black guys, I didn't do it with the black women, there were about four students. Uh, one of my white friends told me I was getting a reputation as being really radical on the campus because that kind of interaction you didn't do. I was astonished on one level because I felt like I wasn't doing a lot. I, you know, I was getting to know some people. I responded to the person, you're saying I'm getting a radical reputation because I'm getting to know some students on campus. They're black students, I know, but that's not very radical. And they responded, well, uh, we don't do things like that around here. A couple of the black friends that I made, one was a football player on the team, and I remember uh, in one of the games they played at the college, uh, it was obviously uh, vastly white uh, folk on the teams. My friend got really harassed a lot and uh, hit a lot because he was the only black player on the team. And I remember him coming off uh, the field and really being really upset. And I wondered whether I should go and talk with him since I was the race of the folk who'd been harassing him, but I did. And he said, I just don't think I can take this much longer. I, I just don't know if I can do this, it's too hard. I kind of understood that. I mean, I kind of understood how hard it might be even out of my white privilege. Then later on in that same school year, that same student, I, had, I was not with him, but he was with some other white friends and uh, had gone to a local restaurant hangout that all the college students went and they refused to serve him. And I remember him coming back and telling me that and I said, well, we need to take some action. And he said, well, I, I'm ready to take some action. So we organized some students to do a boycott of the restaurant and picketed and we closed the uh, restaurant down. I was really shocked. I don't think I've had many victories like that, but I was really shocked uh, that the restaurant decided to close down mainly because it didn't want to be forced to serve black people. So I noticed how deeply that racism was, but also uh, some power that you could gather. I also worked in the campaign of the first black man to run for mayor of Memphis while I was in college. And again, I got a lot of feedback from a lot of white students that uh, this was a radical thing to do. And I, my response was, I'm just working in a political campaign. It is a black person, of course, he lost. And then I worked in the sanitation workers strike the event that brought Martin Luther King to Memphis and to his death. And I remember wrestling with one of my black friends because he was had contacts with the Invaders, which was a black youth group in Memphis, which was growing really tired of Martin Luther King's nonviolence. And I remember him pressing me and saying, Nibs, you're just a soft white person. You don't understand the issues that are involved here. And I know white people are never going to yield power, so we're gonna have to take the power. I didn't realize then he was quoting Frederick Douglass, really, but at that point, I remember just being uh, really conflicted. And in fact, when King came to Memphis, uh, he had organized a march and the police had disrupted it and turned violent. And when he came back the night before he was assassinated, he was speaking at Mason Temple Church and I had an opportunity to go hear him. I remember disdainfully declining to do it because I thought I had begun to accept my black friend's analysis that he was old news and was not helpful. And obviously I've regretted that decision. When I came to Brooklyn uh, in 1966, I was pretty naive. I was captured by white supremacy. And by the time I left college in 1968, I changed pretty radically. It was really just two years later that I'd come such a long way. I, on one level, I was praising myself, but on another level, I was really amazed that I'd come from that distance where I wasn't quite sure who Martin Luther King was. I knew who he was, but I didn't know what he was about or whether I would accept it. 
to the point that the night before he was assassinated and he gave a speech, I decided not to go because I thought he was no longer relevant to the struggle for black rights. And that was pretty amazing. Uh, I've, I've since decided I was wrong. He's always relevant to that kind of struggle. But I was stunned that I had made that kind of journey over a short period of time. And that really it had come about because I decided that I could no longer accept what the prevailing view was that I had been taught by people that I loved. I've been on this kind of journey ever since. I took a long route to the ministry, and I was ordained as a Presbyterian pastor in 1975. My wife Caroline Leach was also a pastor, and we became the first clergy couple in the former Southern Presbyterian Church. And I am so grateful to all of the people of all colors, black, white, Asian, Native American, Hispanic, who stepped into the breaches of my captivity to racism. That captivity is deeply rooted in my identity. And try as I might, there's always a residue in there. And I keep working to scour it out. I'm not talking about feeling guilty about it. I'm just talking about being realistic that it's there. But I'm so grateful to those guides and mentors and liberators who deemed me to be worthy of their efforts to try to liberate me. I'm always remembering the depth of my captivity, but I'm always remembering that there are opportunities for liberation. And I give thanks for those who offer those to me and who say I'm willing to invest time and energy with you. My life seems to be lived between those two poles of captivity and trying to find liberation. But I give thanks that that liberation that made such a difference, that eye-opening, heart-changing, consciousness-challenging experience in Brooklyn, it saved my life. This is Risk. This is the Resistance Revival Chorus behind me now. And we just heard from the remarkable Nibs Stroop, who you should look up. You should look up Nibs' book that he co-wrote with Catherine Meeks called Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. That was edited by John LaSala and Hope Brush. Nibs also has a blog at nibsnotes.blogspot.com. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This is a lovely instrumental cover of Sam Cooke's a Change is Gonna Come by Helen Ebing. 
Folks, I want to do another one of those pitch parties on Zoom. A couple years ago, we invited all Risk fans to come to an event hosted by me on Zoom, and you guys pitched us a ton of stories. A lot of them have been on the podcast since then. This time, I thought we could have you guys pitch us anecdotes. Those are those mini stories that you sometimes hear on the show around four minutes at most, usually focus on just one incident, just one moment in time. Like that one by Jay Carpenter, where one night when she was a kid, a lightning bolt came through the window and knocked her dad unconscious. Or that one by Alexandra Anagnostopoulos, where a man approached her in the street saying the same phrase over and over and over till she woke up and realized it was her partner in bed next to her snoring in her ear. So the Risk Anecdote Pitch Party is going to be on Zoom on Tuesday. Tuesday, July 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Come to the party. Prepared to tell an anecdote. It definitely can't go over four minutes in length that night. We'll pick names out of a hat of who's going to go, and I'll give you feedback. And some folks might just want to watch because it's bound to be a lot of fun either way. So again, that's the Risk Anecdote Pitch Party on Zoom on Tuesday, July 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern. The link will be in the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. Facebook, or you can email me to get the link at kevin at risk-show.com. And if you want some tips on how risk anecdotes work, go to the page on our website, risk-show.com slash anecdotes. One more thing. On the last episode, I mentioned I'm exploring the idea of moving to another country. And I created an email address, which is expatnetwork994 at gmail.com, where you can reach me if you'd like to be connected to other folks looking into that as well. In my case, I'm specifically thinking about Thailand. So if anyone listening, lives in Thailand or, or knows someone who does, reach out to me at expatnetwork994 at gmail.com because I'd love to chat about Thailand. Uh, that email will go right to me, expatnetwork994 at gmail.com. Let's get to our second story today. Now, this is another hefty ride we're about to take. DJ Crystal Clear shared an amazing story, a pretty hilarious story, actually, during the lockdown of 2020, and we were determined to get Crystal back on the show as soon as possible. You can find her on Instagram at DJ Crystal Clear, and she has this phenomenal podcast called Original Versus Cover, where she compares different versions of great songs over the decades. She is a wealth of fascinating knowledge about music that way. Anyway, the story you are about to hear was recorded at Caveat in New York City just a few months ago. So here is DJ Crystal Clear with the story she calls The Day I Became My Own Ruby Bridges. It was the spring of 1970. My parents were trying to find a nursery school for me to go to. Uh, I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Don't sing the song or I'll punch you in your face. <laughs> we were the only black family where I lived in South Whitehall Township. And it took a while for my parents to find a nursery school that would accept me. After about three or four months, they started in December and then in the spring, they found a family, a woman, Mrs. Smith. They lived about a half a mile away from us that were like, sure, we'll take Crystal in, no problem. You know, we love everybody, it's great. White family, obviously. So my parents went there for a preamble, meaning, oh, we're gonna have a little coffee and cake and get to talk to everybody and, you know, see if they're not gonna, like, kill you. We'll see what happens. So my parents brought me along to this preamble and there were three other families there. Now, I'm four years old. I'm a couple of months away from turning five, but I remember this. 
very, very clearly. So we go into the house, and there were some neighbors hanging out outside, staring, wondering what was happening. Why are these black people walking into this woman's house? And there were three families there with their children. And it was like, you know, you walk in, the record stops, everybody turns around. And they were pleasant enough, but I definitely got an energy that something was not right. And I remember my parents talking with Mrs. Smith and the other families, and the vibe was like, snatch up your kid, keep them away from her, don't let them touch what's going on, because these are white people who had never, ever in their entire lives interacted with black people. Not once. So it was very uptight, and I remember my mother holding on to me for dear life, and then eventually she put me down on the floor because there were some toys, and there was a little boy sitting there, and he walked over to me, and he said, what's wrong with you? And there's nothing wrong with me, and then he proceeded to rub my hand to get the brown off and touch my hair because it was weird, and we eventually wound up playing with each other, so the preamble went well, if you want to call that well. (laughs) So then it was time to actually go to nursery school the first day. I remember my mother being very upset and her and my father having very loud, heated conversations, but I knew it was a go and my mother kept saying, you know, you're gonna play with other kids and it's gonna be fun and you're gonna be socialized. She might not have said that, but you know, you're gonna be playing with other kids because I was alone with my parents up until that point. I have a sister, but she's five years younger. So on that day, my father sat down in front of me and he said, Crystal, I want you to know that no matter what happens, it's not your responsibility. Now these sound like big words for a four-year-old, but I'm really smart, so (laughs) the vibe, I got it, right? So we proceed to walk to the Smith's house down this big hill from our house. As we got closer, we heard loud voices, and then I see lights, siren lights, flickering. We get a half a block away, and it's (laughs) just people's yelling and screaming, not knowing what was going on, and my mother is carrying me, holding on to me for dear life. My father is reassuring her. Then we get to across the street from the house. There are hundreds of people outside, There are people with signs. There are people yelling and screaming. The police are there. There are state troopers there. There are news cameras there. It's a whole thing. And my mother said, it's going to be okay. Don't worry, Crystal. You're going to be fine. Nobody's going to touch you. Nobody's going to hurt you. It's going to be fine. Everything is going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I said, okay. I guess it'll be fine. So before we cross the street, My father grabs my left hand, my mother grabs my right hand, and we start walking. And the energy that came toward us was like a wind machine. But they kept holding on, and we kept walking. My mother's nails were digging into my hand. My father was cutting the circulation off at my wrist. We get outside of the house, and it's a line of people on either side of the walkway to the front door. Get out of here, nigger. Go home. We don't want you here. Go back to Africa. Get the fuck out of here. We're going to bomb your house. We know where you live. We're going to fucking kill you. We're going to hang you from that tree. We're going to get you. We're going to get you. We're going to get you. But I just kept holding on. and My parents wouldn't let me go. So there was Mrs. Smith standing outside of the door with a big smile on her face like a Price is Right lady. It's okay, Durance, come on in. It's gonna be fun, it's gonna be great. We love Crystal, she's so wonderful, it's gonna be fantastic. So my father said, all right, let's go. And we took one step, and then I heard a splat. And we stopped. My father turned around, and there was an egg on my mother's shoulder. And he said, just shake it off, Joyce, just shake it off, Joyce, just shake it off. She shook it, and we kept walking, took another step, smack! One hit my father in the back. Now there are state troopers, arm in arm, lined up on either side of us, going right to the Smith's front door. 
I'm wondering if I'm gonna get hit by an egg. I'm not quite sure. My mother says, Bernie, what if somebody has a gun? What are we gonna do? Don't worry, Joyce, we're gonna go, we're going. So as we kept walking, we kept getting pelted by eggs. People were spitting at us, threw tomatoes, the whole nine. Any kind of footage that you see from the 60s, this was basically it. So we get to the front door. Mrs. Mayor says, it's okay, it's okay, I have towels. We can clean you off, it's no problem, it's okay. I didn't get hit, but I got shrapnel, egg shrapnel. So we walk into the house, and there are six families there. And it's like a tribunal. Everybody's staring, nobody knows what to do or what's going on. Ah! Outside, people still yelling and screaming. So my mom said, Crystal, take a deep breath and just sit down right here, it'll be okay. Mommy's gonna get you some water, it'll be all right. So I sat there across from five other families, they're all staring, little kids are looking, you know, tugging on their parents' arm. But nobody seemed to be explicitly frightened, but obviously, you know, we could have had three heads, it would have been the same fucking thing. So my parents start talking to the other parents and I'm sitting there and this little boy walks over to me and he takes my hand and he walks me over to one of those little fake kitchen sets that's made out of wood with the toys. And he's like, Kit, let's make breakfast. Okay, fine. I don't know what that is, but okay, let's do it. So we start playing with each other and then another kid comes over and then another kid and then another kid and we're all playing together. And the parents are like, oh, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. What is going on outside, da, 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 da. And then my mother turned around and she said, look, it's okay. It'll be all right. But it turned out not to be all right because Mrs. Smith had to have a state trooper parked outside of her house for the entire three months that I was there. She got bomb threats. She got leafleted. She got crank phone calls. The entire three months I was there. And then the minute that I didn't have to go there anymore and kindergarten started that fall, the fog lifted and she led a normal life once again. In the meantime, we had a cross burned on our lawn. We had bomb threats. There was a kidnapping attempt on me and my mother. We got leafleted. Cops were threatening us. Crank phone calls 24 hours a day. That was my life for the first 18 years until I left and went to college. So in the end, I want you to remember that 10 years prior to my experience, that was Ruby Bridges' experience. I went through the exact same thing. And I know that it's happened to other kids all over the place, not just Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I'm here as a living example of being triumphant over that stuff. Because let me tell you, when you're driving home from your job at the Gap at the Lehigh Valley Mall, and you're followed by cops on the highway for no apparent reason, and the cop pulls you over and says, what are you doing here with that car, nigger? That can't be your car. Or you make it all the way home and they follow you into your driveway and proceed to ask for your driver's license. And I was like, well, I live here. I don't think so, but, and I was like, do you see the mailbox? It says Durant on it. It's the same name on my driver's license. This is where I live. Ain't no way your parents can afford that house. No, 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 no. The same house that my father had to import bricks from Philadelphia to build because nobody would sell him bricks in Allentown. That was 1963. So I'm here with one of my best friends who happens to be white. <laughs> I like Kevin, he's white, he's cool. And I'm sure the rest of you white folks are really nice too. So when you see racial things or you're around people who are like, I don't know what black people keep complaining about, you can tell them my story. My name is DJ Crystal Clear, and that's my story and I'm sticking to it. They say everything 
replaced They say every distance is not near is all for this week's episode folks this is the great nina simone singing i shall be released this is so funny we have featured this song so many times by so many different people except for bob dylan (laughs) we've yet to get to the songwriter (laughs) his bobness himself but uh, i'm sure i'm sure we'll get there i once tried to put a version by maroon five on the show, but there was a mutiny amongst our editors, so you were spared that, I guess. You know, I I find it a little ironic that earlier in the episode I was like, um, hey, I'm thinking of moving to another country. And now I'm like, and now yet another person singing I Shall Be Released. (laughs) But of course, we just heard from the wonderful DJ Crystal Clear Don't forget to look up Crystal's fabulous podcast, Original Versus Cover, where she compares different versions of great songs, like I was just talking about. And you can find her on Instagram at DJ Crystal Clear. Folks, this programming that we do at risk is really one of a kind. And if you would like to support what we do, we dearly, dearly need your support and you can do that by becoming a member at patreon.com slash risk where you will find so many bonus stories and check-ins interviews with storytellers and staff members and just me checking in about you know for example a, a lot of you sent in recordings about how much the show means to you i'm about to record this weekend yet another like me listening back to those recordings and responding back to you guys so there's so much wonderful content at patreon.com risk and if you want to make a one-time donation that is at paypal.me slash risk show Don't forget to look up our school. It's at thestorystudio.org. We do all sorts of storytelling training, including custom-tailored corporate workshops for staffs of businesses or any kind of team. Again, that's at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. It's my first day of preschool. I look around the room. I see this little boy standing in front of a toy stove. All I can do is stand there and stare at him because he's the very first black person I've ever seen in my life. And the only thing that I know about black people is what I've learned from my grandpa. 
young man, you need to watch out for black people. They'll hurt you and they'll steal from you. And you need to stay away from them. A couple weeks later, the teacher announces that she's going to put us all into pairs. She says that I'm going to be put with Aaron, and I quickly figure out that Aaron is the little boy who scares me. We're sitting together awkwardly until finally Aaron asks, Hey, um, what's your favorite color? I really like green. And I tell him, I don't like green a whole lot. I prefer blue. Oh, okay. What about your favorite food? I, I like mac and cheese a whole lot. And I look at Aaron and I ask him, wait, really? Your favorite food is mac and cheese? That's my favorite food. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love mac and cheese. It's the best. And as we talk to one another, I realize that Aaron is just a little boy just like me. He might have a different skin color, but we're really the same. And from now on, whenever I have a disagreement with somebody or I see somebody who's different and I want to judge them, I think to myself, maybe their favorite food is mac and cheese as well. <laughs>